This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello, and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio, on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio, and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk, directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Robert Sietzema discusses his new book, New York in a Dozen Dishes. Then PW writer Anise Gross previews PW's San Francisco Bay Area Spotlight feature. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. What do you have on the nonfiction side well, for us, Mark? Very, very slim pickings. We have number three, um, Adios America by Ann Coulter. Um, and no surprise when she's got a book, it's on the list. We don't have a review of this, but uh, according to the press, uh, they say Ann Coulter is back, more fearless than ever. And here she touches uh, the third rail in American politics, attacking the immigration issue head on and flying in the face of the Democrats. And um, that's at number three. Uh, number eight is a book that's been getting a lot of attention the last week or so. It's a memoir by Wednesday, uh, Wednesday Martin. Uh, it's called The Primates of Park Avenue. And mm-hmm. this is, uh, she lived for a few years on the Upper East Side of New York City. And she writes about the uh, uh, those who inhabit the, that area. She herself covets an $8,000 Birkin bag in order to show dominance amongst the pack that she uh, she runs around with. She talks about the ways they uh, raise children, uh, thinking nothing of shelling out $25,000 on kids' finger painting at school function. Wow. And uh, certain things like this. So... Um, uh, that's at number eight. Again, this has been getting, I'm, I'm not surprised because it's been getting a lot of attention in the New Yorker, New York, and all the New York media. And, and a backlash, too, of people, uh, I think there's been talk about her perhaps not being where she said she was in the years she said. So uh, there's been some talk about possible fabrication. On number uh, 23, we have a cookbook, Franklin Barbecue by Aaron Franklin. Uh, He's the proprietor of Franklin Barbecue in Austin, Texas. And he writes that barbecue doesn't operate with absolutes of temperature, time, and measurement. And here he spends most of his time exploring the uh, general mechanics and intangibles behind creating a delicious brisket, for example. In our review, we say uh, when finally the brisket recipe is proffered late in the book, it's a 13-page affair. So this is a whole wow. thing. It's, a, it's a unbelievable, complete with step-by-step instructions and photos. As Franklin reminds us, brisket is a big, dumb piece of meat, but that many apparently love. So that's at number 23. And I am really low on books for that. Uh, I, I should say on, on uh, uh, debuts. Yes, indeed. All debuts, so. Well, there's plenty on the fiction list, uh, starting with the new Stephen King, Finders Keepers, mm. uh, which is all the way up there. Number one, no surprise, uh, stars the retired detective hero of Mr. Mercedes, his book from 2014. Uh, and we say that this is a taut thriller about the thin line separating fandom from fanaticism. Uh, And in this case, the antagonist is a man named Morris Bellamy, who murders his literary idol. Mm. And uh, we say Bellamy is one of King's creepiest creations, a literate and intelligent character whom any passionate reader will both identify with and be repelled by. So uh, this is clearly uh, up there with King's best work. And... uh, worth whatever the fans are paying for it to $30 cover price, 68,000 copies sold in its first week out. Uh, he's, he's still got it. Wow. And, uh, moving down the list a little bit at number three is in the unlikely event, mm-hmm. uh, a novel by Judy Bloom, who's obviously best known for her books for children. Right. And I mean, I grew up 
reading Judy Blue books. This one is certainly for adults, and uh, this is actually her first adult novel since Summer Sisters in 1998. So uh, she she really has a very YA focused, middle grade focused career, uh, and this is a rare bird. Mm. Uh, and these are focused. This book is focused around three fatal plane crashes that hit Elizabeth, New Jersey, in the winter of 1951. Oh wow, 52, and that's in fact where she grew up. So that's, oh, that's I didn't the know inspiration. she's from Elizabeth. Yeah, your neighbor. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, we say that her novel is characteristically accessible, frequently charming, and always deeply human. First printing announced is 350,000 copies. Oh, and she's there wow. at number three on the bestseller right. list. Uh, down at number eight, we have The Fateful Lightning by Jeff Shara. Uh, he's been writing a series of, of books about uh, the Civil War, and this is the final installment Mm -hmm. in that series we don't have a review of it um, but he's clearly got his fans who's consistently a bestseller with this series so uh, historical fiction fans will appreciate that one Um, at 15 we have palace of treason by jason matthews we gave this a starred review this is a sequel to 2013's red sparrow uh, which won both the edgar award and the thriller award for best first novel so uh, we say the sequel is every bit as good as the debut uh, with authentic tradecraft a complex plot that steadily builds tension incredible heroes and villains on both sides uh, this is a, a spy novel between uh, with a, a romance between a CIA office officer uh, and a member of the Russian Foreign Intelligence Service so plenty of emotional tension espionage tension uh, looks like a fun ride and so great that one I mean, can follow up uh, a, a book with another one that we say is just as wonderful as the first I mean that's a hard feat to do yeah especially if you have a standout debut right. you, know, you yourself are a hard act to follow right. you, you might have spent 20 years <laughs> polishing and refining that and now you have a year or two to write the follow up right. um, so yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly. It's, yeah. it's very gratifying to see yeah. his success here uh, a little further down the list, I just wanted to call out a couple of science fiction and fantasy books that are on the bestseller list this week. I'm always personally happy to see them there. Uh, we have Nemesis Games by James S.A. Corey at number 24. Um, this is the latest book in the Expanse space opera series, which is being turned into a television mm-hmm. show. And uh, we gave this one a starred review. It's pretty hard for a book to get that this far in a series, but um, this, is, uh, this is book five, I believe. But uh, our reviewer really thought it was outstanding. Uh, A tale of violence, intrigue, ambition, and hope uh, among the outer planets of the solar system. And we see that Corey cranks up the tension relentlessly in this fast-paced story of heroes and rebels fighting for freedom with enough thrills and intrigue for three Hollywood blockbusters. How they're going to fit that all into one television series. I couldn't tell you, but uh, I've I've been seeing right. the authors occasionally post little stills from from there, and the the first teasers are at looks really good. Wow! And uh, finally, uh, all the way down at uh, number thirty one is Shards of Hope by Nalini Singh. Uh, this is the fifteenth side changeling paranormal romance. We also gave this a star. Uh, again, deep in a series, it's really hard for a book to stand out and have appeal outside of that series but uh the way that sing structures this series is that every book focuses on a particular couple who find their romance in this larger setting of wars among paranormal Uh entities and so um each book has its own solid arc in addition to advancing the arc of the series and uh, we say this one balances complex psychological changes and deep love uh and and it's a a book about recovering from trauma Uh in in particular uh children with psychic powers were mandated to be emotionless which was thought would help them to control their abilities right. but instead of turned them into psychopaths and now that edict has wow. been lifted and they're all learning how to have feelings again which is as dramatic and difficult as you might imagine uh, and so you know, this couple sort of comes together in the midst of this time of turmoil upheaval and we say that the tension of an epic psychological thriller provides the framework for an unparalleled romantic adventure so Great. That sounds like fun to you. This is one one <laughs> right. to pick up. And that's what we've got on the hardcover fiction list. 
All right. We'll see what we have next week. All right. I'm looking forward to it. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Robert Sietzema tells us about eating his way around New York. We'll be right back. I'm Kabir Segel, author of Coint, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Robert Sietzema on the line. His new book is New York in a Dozen Dishes. Robert, so glad you could join us. Hi. I'm so glad you asked me. I'm looking forward to this. So, New York in 12 Dishes, uh, you're a longtime food writer, first for The Village Voice, now at New York Times, Lucky Peach. Tell us where the idea for this book came from. Um, This is an interesting uh, way that the idea was generated because I had first gone to my editor at Houghton Mifflin with the idea of writing a memoir, and he quickly convinced me that there'd been too many damn memoirs by foodies that just bogged down in the middle and were boring as hell. So together, he and I worked out this concept whereby I would talk about myself via talking about a dozen quintessential dishes of New York. So the thing is part history, part travelogue, and partly about me. And so let's jump right in. I mean, uh, your first uh, your first chapter is on um, pizza. Tell us, uh, tell us your experience with New York pizza. First of all, you're not from New York originally, right? No, I was, uh, to give you my entire history in a thumbnail, I was born in Michigan, grew up in Chicago and Minneapolis, went to high school in Dallas, college in Texas, and grad school in Wisconsin. So I kind of spread all over the Midwest and the Southwest. So I didn't come to New York until 1977 uh, after washing out of a graduate program at University of Wisconsin. And... Uh, one of the first things I ate here was pizza, and man, it blew me away. I was used to really crappy bar pizza and homemade pizza that was okay, but didn't have any of the vivacity of uh, New York pizza, which is, let's face it, the best pizza in the world. And so uh, tell us about that experience. You talk a little bit about uh, uh, the pizza place on St. Mark's, which I remember from 1987. Uh, and what you liked about it was a little bit of the sugar in the sauce. Tell us about the various pizzas that you have and uh, that you've eaten and which ones you, you recall from those time periods. Well, definitely the pizza you mentioned, which is Stromboli's, which is at the corner of St. Mark's and First Avenue. That's the first one I remember because that was my neighborhood pizza. Because when I first moved to the East uh, Village, when I first moved to New York, rather, I moved first to the East Village because that's, you're not going to believe this, that's where the apartments were just incredibly cheap. Like, I paid $150 a month for my apartment, uh, which is almost unbelievable now given how gentrified the housing stock is there. But um, you find when you first move to New York that, like a baby duck imprinting on its mother just after being hatched, that the first pizza you try is the one that you love best for the rest of your life. And that certainly <laughs> happened with Stromboli's. And you're right, it, it does have a little bit of sugar in it, which is kind of an asset. It seems to be that the, that the Sicilian pizza makers use a little more sugar than the Neapolitan ones. So, you know, but I quickly came to love all sorts of different pizzas around town. One of my favorites now is John's, which was one of the original coal oven places. Uh, that really started out pizza in the world. I mean, uh, even though it was based on a Neapolitan model, it was here that pizza came of age and became the wonderful worldwide product it is today. Now, I I grew up in the West Village, and so I was eating pizza at John's, um, but also at the now late-lamented Ray's Pizza on 11th Street and 6th Avenue, and they absolutely put sugar in the sauce, and I've never had it like that anywhere else. And and yes, as you say, you, you imprint on it. Yeah, it's it's just that's the one, and that's one of the mega cheesy pizzas too. That's yes. part of the whole category of places where they just smother the pizza in cheese. So, so do you have a sort of taxonomy of pizzerias or of pizzas? Uh, in in the book, definitely. I begin with the old cold, cold oven places like Lombardi's and Patsy's and John's, and then kind of trace the history of the pizza in New York up through the 1950s. Uh, when this amazing kind of stacked uh, pizza oven was invented and sold at a relatively cheap price, making it possible for returning World War II veterans and, uh, and new Italian immigrants to get into the pizza business. And 
that was the golden age of pizza here. Uh, this pizza is kind of different. It's been morphed from the coal oven pizza, which bakes at 900 degrees, because these ovens only ran at about 550. So the pizzas could be thicker, they could be lusher, and all of the pizzas that we've just been talking about, Stromboli's and Ray's, these date from that era, from the 50s and 60s, when you could suddenly put a lot more crap on the pizza. And, you know, we as kids got used to, like, eating pizzas that were, uh, you know, that were lushly furnished rather than the spare uh, pizzas that were done in the coal-burning ovens. And if I'm not mistaken, this, this oven was, was invented by, a, was it a man in Brooklyn, a uh, uh, pizzaiolo in Brooklyn, uh, who, who had a small, uh, a small pizzeria that I, I think where a lot of well-known pizzaiolos came from. Uh-huh. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. It sounds like you've got, you're in possession of some facts that I didn't know, but that's the wonderful thing about pizza. It's such a, a gigantic field, uh, and there's so much room for speculation that you really have to take your chance and put your ass on the line when it comes to, uh, to making speculations about pizza, and that's what I do. I do say some things, I make some assertions that the reader might disagree with. You know, I remember I too lived in the East Village uh, and ate at St. Mark's. Uh, and then when I was a student at Columbia, I ate at Coronet, which wasn't as, as I don't think, as tasty a pizza, but the size was just so impressive. It, it, it's good. It's great. I mean, I like that pizza a lot, but it's, it's of the yeah. unsweet school and of the spare school. So you don't have a lot of toppings on it, but the way they compensate you is by giving you more dough. I mean, the thing about, about that place and a whole bunch of imitators that have grown up mainly on the Upper West Side and around Columbia uh, is that they have gigantic slices. The slices may cost <laughs> you $3, but they're bigger than a dinner plate. I mean, they, they purposefully knock your eyes out with them. And I've actually seen people cutting one of the slices in half and sharing them. <laughs> right. So, you know, taking another step to a different cuisine, let's go to another ubiquitous uh, ethnic uh, cuisine, and that's Chinese food. And you write specifically about egg foo young. That's right. Uh, egg foo young is a dish that's kind of fallen on hard times. Uh, back in the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s were the era of Chinese carryout in the neighborhood Chinese restaurant, which was almost as important as the neighborhood pizzeria. And these were run by Chinese immigrants who had a cuisine that had evolved over 100 years incorporating Chinese food for American tastes. Uh, and the dishes were just, I mean, if you look at the anatomy of an egg foo young, I mean, what is it? It's an omelet, but it's an omelet that's been deep fried, filled with vegetables, and it has brown gravy that you would absolutely never see anywhere in China. As a matter of fact, the gravy is distinctly English or German, perhaps, you know, and reflects Americans' uh, propensities for eating things like mashed potatoes covered in gravy. I mean, you still see it at the uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken chain that you still have that brown gravy, but that gravy went over egg foo young, and so what you have is a dish that's a mashup of several cultures all at once, perfectly suited to the American taste. And then, um, you know, as we became foodies, we started discarding some of these old cuisines, such as Chinese-American, in favor of newfangled stuff like Northern Chinese and Thai and dumplings from Northern China and a kind of a wheat-based rather than rice-based cuisine. And unfortunately, we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. So my attempt is to kind of memorialize this dish, which was so influential 40 or 50 years ago. And so, what was your your uh, introduction to Chinese food? I mean, obviously, it was here when you were when you moved here in the '70s, and this was the era of both punk and disco. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about that. Well, at that time, if you wanted Chinese food, you either got uh, neighborhood carryout, or you went down to Chinatown. And of course, going down to Chinatown for writers like Calvin Trillin and others became a kind of iconic. Uh, a kind of iconic uh, journey, like going down to Chinatown was something that was really exciting, and it was like visiting another country. And, uh, and the Chinese restaurant tourists played this up, the exoticism of it. And, uh, and so, you know, I, I, I had first experienced Chinese food in a carryout sense uh, back when I lived in Minnesota, but my family almost never ate out, and that was kind of common in the 50s and 60s, that, uh, that eating out for middle-class families was certainly not something the children did. 
and the parents did it only sparingly when they weren't going to cocktail parties. So, um, so you know, I became mildly familiar with Chinese food, but what I ate, I liked, and as soon as I got to New York, I started seeking out some of the regional Chinese cuisines, which had begun appearing in the 80s and the 90s. Wow. And, well, um, what about the Reuben sandwich? Or, I'm um, sorry, let's talk pastrami. <laughs> okay, sure. Um, pastrami is a mystery meat. Um, you know, we don't really know where it came from. We, we often say that it came uh, from Romania with Jewish immigrants. But if you go back to Romania, there's no such thing. I mean, the pastrami is really an American invention, and it's mm-hmm. one that was promulgated in German Jewish delis. Uh, starting around maybe 1910 and 1920. Uh, in the book, once again, trying to be controversial, I actually trace pastrami back to Texas barbecues. So there is some reason to believe that Jews in Texas invented pastrami as we know it, and it came back to New York and became the deli staple it is today. But that's completely controversial. But suffice to say that back in Romania, there's no such thing as pastrami as we know it. What they call pasturma is really kind of a... Uh, a very fine-grained uh, smoked beef served cold. Mm. So it sounds I, like it sounds like you've got this real interest in cuisines that have mutated and shifted the layers of immigration and assimilation. Um, was was there a starting point for that fascination for you, or has it just always been there? Well, when I grew up in the Midwest, I grew up in a relatively homogenous population. Uh, of white Protestants, and that can be a kind of uh, a boring cultural diet. I mean, arriving in New York, it was like I just ended up in a tumultuous United Nations session. And seeing myself surrounded by so many other cultures and ethnicities, I immediately became curious. You know, you always wonder, does that group that lives on the next block, do they have better food than me? I smell something interesting on that block. What could it be? And pretty soon, I mean, that sort of sort of uh, situation has created so many amazing dishes, like, for example, corned beef and cabbage. When the Irish came here in the 19th century after the potato famine, they basically just had cabbage. Steamed cabbage was their diet, but they were with Jews who had corned beef. And pretty soon the two were put together in something that was much greater than the sum of its parts, corned beef and cabbage, which has become something of a signature dish for Irish Americans. So, and that happens between all cultural groups. You know, I mean, the first time a, uh, a hamburger appeared on bodega taqueria menus, you know, I wanted to be there and taste it so, to see what it would be like. And you also choose some, I mean, all, all of these foods you've talked about have been, are, are very familiar, but you also choose uh, foods as kind of New York iconic, as such as the Mexican sandwich, the uh, pambazo. That's right. Uh, I have other things in there, too, like scrambled brains and qui. Uh, I tried to pick some things that were more obscure and even some things that may never become popular because in trying to create a portrait of New York food now. I wanted to include some things that were right on the, on the edges. I wanted to include some things that were not known by the general public just for my own fascination. And that pambazo is, is one. It's a sandwich that uh, was invented in Mexico as street food in Veracruz. Uh, it involved the very poorest of people eating a bread that had no oil in it called pambazo. It involves a sandwich that, uh, in order to make it more exciting, is dipped in chili sauce. So you have a chili sandwich with a little layer of cheese and meat, and, uh, and it's all red and dripping with chili sauce, and it's absolutely dish- delicious. It's the gloppiest thing you've ever tasted, and as of right now, I know only five places in town that serve it, and yet I devote an entire chapter to it, mainly by way of talking about the massive impact that Mexican immigrants have had specifically on the cuisine of New York. And what are the restaurants that you can go to? Are they uh, uh, in Manhattan or are they in the boroughs? Um, well, these to get the Pambazo, you have to go to Sunset Park or you have to go to Roosevelt Avenue in Corona and, and Jackson Heights. Uh, mm-hmm. And two of the places are just carts. Where, uh, where you have to buy the sandwich from a sandwich cart, which is the way that the thing was originally vended in Mexico. But still, it's a relatively obscure 
uh, sandwich. And I was just talking with Jonathan Gold the other day, and he suggested that it's become more of a Mexico City phenomenon, and that a certain group that came from Mexico City quite recently are the ones who are promulgating this absolutely delicious sandwich treat. Oh, wow. That sounds wonderful. Now, um, the, the, you had just mentioned Cuy, uh, which is a, uh, a guinea pig. Tell us about it is that. a literal <laughs> guinea pig, like the kind you find in the pet shops, and that is a delicacy in uh, several Andean countries, especially in Ecuador, in Peru, uh, and to a lesser extent in Colombia and Brazil. And when the immigrants came here, they brought the Cui with them. But once again, the Cui never achieved the widespread popularity. Maybe it's because people don't want to eat their pets. Or uh, maybe it's because it was so expensive. I mean, the first Cui supposedly came here in suitcases. But, you know, it's a dish that's, while it's indispensable in Ecuador, here it seems to have faded from view. I did actually get a chance to eat it once at a, at a friend's barbecue. And, oh, my uh, God. <laughs> we we had to go all over the city to find a place that that had them and they were frozen so you know probably not the not the best quality but i gotta say i wasn't impressed i i assume that she didn't think of um of just going to the pet shop and getting one we we considered and discarded this idea <laughs> yeah it's uh it, i don't think it's a, a fun thing to clean and besides they're so cute yes exactly <laughs> we're gonna take a quick break don't go away Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Robert Sietzema, author of New York and a Dozen Dishes. So what, what else have you found? You said scrambled brains. That sounds exciting. Um, I tried to pick something that I was on the fence about. I didn't want everything to be out-and-out, delicious, delightful things that I eat all the time. So one thing that I have personally been squeamish about is brains. And I'm not talking about human brains here, although... The prob- one of the problems with eating brains is that brains from a goat or brains from a cow or go- brains from a pig look exactly like human brains. And, uh, and when they cook up, uh, you know, the French are very fond of brains, the Pakistanis and the Indians are very fond of brains. When the French cook them up, they cook them up with black butter, which is butter that's turned into black particulate matter by uh, vinegar. And so they will saute it uh, in the middle of the United States, oddly enough, in, uh, in St. Louis and Kansas City. There's a fried brain sandwich that you can sometimes get in some of the lowest eateries. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, so it's not unknown here, but to me, uh, assessing a plate of brains, I often become squeamish. So it's one of those things I kind of had to teach myself to eat it. And uh, you know, I've I've had various organ meat here. And so, where where uh, where would you go? And what was your experience getting that in the city? Was that something when you were like when you first moved here in the seventies, or is that over the course of time? Uh, that was over the course of time. And actually, this chapter about brains, I use it to give a little thumbnail history of this thing called the Organ Meat Society, which mm. has been uh, in New York now uh, almost twenty years. It's an organization that seeks out um, chances to eat awful, and uh, if not awfully. And, um, and I was initially uh, their advisor uh, because they, at that time when the organization started, you didn't have things like bone marrow and, uh, and sweetbreads on every right. uh, yepified menu. I mean, it was something that you really had to go, for example, to a Uzbeki barbecue to get. So they enlisted me, and at first I thought, well, this is a crazy idea for a club. But, you know, almost any idea for a dining club is good, and this presented plenty of opportunity for eating some amazing food and tricking people into going to remote places to eat it. And you just uh, mentioned the Uzbeki, you said Uzbeki barbecue? Right. 
And tell us about that. Is that uh, how is that different or similar or not at all uh, like the uh, uh, radizio, like Brazilian radizio? Um, that and Texas barbecue and all the kinds of barbecue we have are kind of Filipino barbecue too. Are relatively similar in their attitudes. The result is often different. Uh, the Uzbekis, like the Texans, insist on barbecuing over charcoal or wood. Mm-hmm. Um, with the Uzbeki restaurants, uh, they are kebab-based, they are Silk Road-driven, uh, and they often take little tidbits of meat and put them on a skewer and cook them over uh, lump charcoal, which imparts a smoky flavor, uh, You know, especially with the fattier meats. If you put uh, lamb rib, for example, over charcoal in one of these Uzbeki places, you get just the smokiest product imaginable. And these are served just with, like, French fries and stuff. It's amazing how they kind of evolved into a similar situation to Texas barbecue. And um, they also have a lot of uh, variety meats that you don't find in Texas barbecue. Like, they often barbecue sweetbreads. They often barbecue liver on brochettes. And uh, and these places started appearing maybe 17 or 18 years ago. At first they were Jewish, but then we had some Muslim places. Uh, and fascinating cuisine. The very first places that I went to were in the Garment Center, and I was amazed to see them barbecuing over an open trough of coals right next to the window with no hood, which must have been something of a fire hazard. Wow. Now, what draws you? What kind of food inspires you? I mean, you you tend to write about maybe at times like lowbrow food, not the highbrow. I mean, you had a, last year a great piece in the, in the Times on Jersey hot dogs. Um, how, how do you find these ideas? What just draws your attention to them? Um, well, as a restaurant critic, my focus has always been consumerist, which is why I remain anonymous and make a point of anonymity when I go out to restaurants and wear a mask when I appear on panels. Uh, The reason being that, like, I want people to eat well and cheaply. Uh, I want to be on their side rather than on the side of restaurateurs. Mm. And uh, I am much more impressed by a $5 meal than a $50 or a $500 meal. And believe me, you could easily spend $500 on a meal these days. Yeah. Um, and uh, so tell us a little bit about, well, I actually want to talk about hamburgers. That's one thing you hadn't mentioned. Is that something that's not, or, or even hot dogs, uh, that isn't, even though we see hot dogs on the street corner everywhere, uh, part of your experience in New York that was, that was uh, kind of influential for you? Um, I love hot dogs. I love hamburgers. Uh, to my way of thinking, I, they've been, too completely covered. There's entire books yeah. on hamburgers. Uh, and I write often enough about hot dogs and Eater, which is my current gig. Uh, mm-hmm. So um, I just I had to pick something and eliminate something else. And so I said, well, to hell with the hot dogs and hamburgers, but maybe some future book. For sure. By the way, the hamburger was ostensibly invented in New York, uh, as one of the story goes. The original, if you consider a hamburger to be a patty without the bun. Uh, They -hmm. were originally served in the 1820s on Lower West Side docks to homesick German sailors Hmm. from Hamburg. Fascinating. So, um, as uh, as Mark mentioned, there are people selling food out of carts on every street corner. Um, any, Any hope of maybe a future book from you on food carts, food trucks, all of the portable food that I feel is such a New York thing going all the way back to Orchard Street? Well, from your lips to Buddha's ears, I would love to write a book like that. So, <laughs> Great. so tell us what is next for you. Um, obviously, you've got this book to promote, uh, and, and what are you eating these days? Um, I'm eating a lot of Venezuelan food, which has been a big hit here lately. And believe it or not, we're starting to get a lot of Hawaiian restaurants. I think I counted eight of them. So, you know, every food fad that sweeps over the country, I try to be on top of it. So that takes a lot of legwork. Uh, and I, you know, write a lot for Eater New York. I, uh, I sometimes write for Lucky Peach. And I just I try to keep on top of, <laughs> of the trends that are going on, although for one person to do that is next to impossible. So Hawaiian, are we talking a revival of Trader Vic's? <laughs> or or well, what are we talking about? 
partly, we did have a fad for uh, tiki tiki bars and cocktails yeah. about five or six years ago. But this is more, uh, I think, motivated by Hawaiian expats who miss the spam, who miss the the macaroni salad, who miss the nori rolls and the fried chicken, you know, the cutlets. They have several different uh, things. And, you know, the problem with Hawaii is that they don't really have too many farms other than for fruit. And so it's a kind of a vegetable-challenged cuisine. So, um, mm. so eating in a Hawaiian restaurant is, is, a, uh, is kind of a meat-intensive experience. So, but that's always a popular strain of cuisine here in New York. So. Sure. We've been talking with Robert Sitsume. You can find his book, New York in a Dozen Dishes, in stores right now. Robert, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW writer Anise Gross talks about what's happening in the Bay Area literary scene. Stay tuned. I am Mario Marazziti, author of 13 Ways of Looking at the Death Penalty, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week, we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. And today, PW writer Anise Gross is here to give us a sneak peek at next week's Bay Area feature. Hi, Anise. Hi, how are you? Good, thanks. So so tell us about this, what's happening in the Bay Area regarding publishing. Yeah, well, I think, you know, a lot of eyes are on the Bay Area in general. Um, we're sort of going through our, uh, the city is having a second dot-com boom, and but I think despite that, what's happening in Silicon Valley, you know, the Bay Area still holds on to this, you know, original spirit of reinvention. It's always been a place where people come to try something new or change the industry that they're in. And I think that's really reflected in what's happening in publishing and book selling here. Um, it, the stereotype, a cliche of San Francisco and the Bay Area being kind of offbeat and different is still true, but that doesn't necessarily mean that what's happening here is marginal or small or not thriving. Um, And I think being outside of the New York power hub isn't a disadvantage uh, for people here. And it's offered some real freedoms and created a spirit of kind of collaboration and reinvention among uh, publishers and booksellers, and and Sam in the Bay Area has always had a, a a big you know strong literary uh, history. I mean, with the Beats. I mean, a little before that as well, but also you know recently with um, Michael uh, Chabon and and but here you're right. We 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 think mostly about the dot com boom. So 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 what do we have here? What's going on in the uh, literary world? Um, well, you know, speaking of you know, it's an interesting time. You mentioned like the Beats and Ferlinghetti. A lot of those old timers, um, like Lawrence Ferlinghetti of City Lights Books and Publishers, and Malcolm Margolin of Heyday, and Ron Turner of Last Gasp, and some of these early pioneers, uh, Felice Newman and Frederic Delacoste of Clias Press, they're you know phasing out, retiring, or getting old, and and so a lot of the people that are taking on the helms of these publishers are trying to stay true to that spirit of being in the West and, you know, bucking trends, but also having to field all the challenges of the, the rise of the digital world. And the, you know, the, the second dot com boom here, I think primarily it's created some challenges, particularly for small businesses. And we can talk about bookstores, but it's also created um, some opportunities for publishers. You know, a lot of us book lovers are kind of Luddites that are, reluctantly capitulating to the digital world but some um but some publishers see that as an opportunity and an exciting time and they're not sort of like ooh the silicon valley so um you see some publishers working together and, and libraries for example collaborating with startups to create apps or programs to function in their libraries so i think it is having you know both a positive and and negative effect um or at least Maybe not negative, but it's presenting some challenges, particularly for small businesses. So uh, is there a startup culture in publishing? Do you get a lot of small sort of maverick businesses, one or two people trying to make it on their own? Yeah, well, there's a ton of um, there's a ton of startups uh, in the literary and publishing world. 
in this various spotlight, I focus on five of them, but one of them is, you know, smash words, which if you think about necessity being the mother of invention, uh, the founder of smash words, you know, was trying to shop around, uh, like, I think it was a satirical soap opera book that he wrote with his wife, uh, and no publisher would touch it. And so they founded this company, which is, um, you know, an ebook publisher for self-published authors. And now they have, I think it's over 350,000 titles. And, you know, he's going for a million. And he's saying that, you know, publishers don't always know what readers want to read. And they just wanted to be able to say yes to the kinds of authors that were writing books that, you know, may take off to be huge successes that publishers didn't want to take a risk on. Um, you know, and then there's ebook subscription services. There's Goodreads was started here in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the interesting things that the CEO of Goodreads said when we chatted was that, you know, when uh, it was acquired by Amazon, Jeff Bezos said, you know, the, the, the essence of, you know, running this business is not to anticipate um, what's going to change, but to think about what won't change. And one of the things that won't change is that, you know, people are always want to find great books. So I think a lot of these startup cultures, um, a lot of these startups are focusing on like, okay, people will always love books. Like how do we, you know, utilize and leverage the advances in technology to keep, to facilitate that um, and help keep that healthy. So tell us what's going on with libraries and bookstores Out, outside of the digital realm. They're, they're very focused on, on the real, on the present, on people walking in and picking a book off the shelf. How's that working? Well, we start with libraries. I mean, I think they're a little different in that bookstores haven't really gone, haven't really necessarily engaged with the digital world. They're more surviving it. Um, libraries, however, though, I think are almost in the in the space of rebranding themselves, you know, we've always thought of libraries as kind of centers where books are. We go to them and we get the books and we take them home and we read them. And and now libraries are, you know, positioning themselves as centers, you know, kind of future forward thinking centers of information. I mean, the San Francisco Public Library, I mean, one thing is that Bay Area people love their libraries. We voted for a huge $106 million bond measure that allowed for all these incredible renovations of neighborhood branches. And it's also expanded hours and anticipated needs. I think almost 30% of their budget now is in e-media. And they say, the city librarian there said, you know, um, they have a lot of young people coming in and what young people want to access is a lot of e-media, e-books, audio books, and that has required them to diversify their collection, which was, you know, pretty much just regular books, print books. Um, they also have a tech mobile. I mean, the old-fashioned book mobile of yore is sort of being replaced by these way fancier uh, tech book mobiles. I mean, the one in San Francisco has a 3D printer on it. I mean, they're way above what I had as a kid. Um, so they're, you know, they're really anticipating um, the needs of the future. Um, whereas bookstores, I think, you know, I mean, they're just, they're holding on to the sort of, um, to the print. And bookstores in San Francisco and the Bay Area are doing really, really well. Um the dot-com boom has created this insane real estate situation in the city. Um, so there's been a lot of evictions. The minimum wage has gone up to $15 or is about to. Um, so between that and online sales, you would think that bookstores would be um, really, really in trouble, but they're not. They're thriving. There's new stores opening or relocating, um, and the ones that are around are I think doing well in part because of the creative ways that they've solved the problems that they faced. Um, and more than a dozen new indie bookstores opened in the past two years in Northern California. Um, and I know that, you know, there's, um, let's see. So for example, the minimum wage going up to $15 was the, was the, um, cited reason that Borderlands, which is a sci-fi bookstore, sci-fi fantasy bookstore and cafe in San Francisco, said they were going to close. And when that happened, there was all this media attention. 
you know, regulars really, I mean, they basically uh, came out in droves to say, we'll do anything we can to save it. So their creative solution to survival was to create a sponsorship program, and it was successful. And through that, they've been able to stay open. So you've been talking about the digital aspects of it, but then also, you know, you know, brick and mortar bookstores. And then there's a whole nother thing with this cookbooks that has not had a really big, uh, digital or e- digital or ebook market. What about, what's the, uh, there's, there's two major cookbook publishers in San Francisco in the Bay area and a couple of, uh, cookbook specific bookstores there too. Yeah. I think, you know, it's interesting that the one area that doesn't seem touched by digital advances is cookbooks. Um, and I think, you know, um, the, let's see, um, I know that at Chronicle Books, they developed some of the very first, like, cooking apps and enhanced ebooks. but they said, and they put a lot of money into it, but the market for those tech add-ons never took off, um, and they never worked, and no one wanted them. And I think, even though that there's blogs and, you know, other ways that people act, online recipes and the way that people access sort of cooking information online, a lot of that is tied up, um, ironically, tied up with imagery. I mean, you look at these food blogs online and and we're in a sort of an image-driven moment. And I think that might be part of the reason why people really want these beautiful physical objects that are photo-heavy. They're not the cookbooks, you know, that I grew up with that just had words in them. Um, they're these very uh, design-focused print books. And a lot of the success of the books that Chronicle and Tenspeed put out, for example, are based on local chefs and restaurants. Um, we have, I believe, the you know the most restaurants per capita than any other American city. Um, and so we have this amazing bounty of food and agriculture. And everyone here is really interested in that sort of farm-to-table uh, way of living. And so we, you know, the city of San Francisco has a cookbook, uh, bookstore, um, omnivore books in Noe Valley. And, you know, she says that Celia Sack, the woman who owns that Mm -hmm. store says that people are just crazy about, um, cookbooks that, um, more than ever. So I don't know why that is, to be honest. I mean, I know that people can cook from their, you know, recipe online, but people really still want cookbooks and it's, you know, I have friends that have cookbooks. They don't even use them. They just like to have them on their shelf and look at them. So there is a lifestyle kind of aspect to it. I might resemble that remark <laughs> a, li- a little bit. Um, so uh, speaking of restaurants, cafes, and so on, tell us about some of the literary events that happen in the Bay Area. I know that um, Charlie Jane Anders is always trying to get me to come out for Writers with Drinks, and there are plenty other uh, literary events happening. What's that scene like? Well, San Francisco and the Bay Area has such a huge literary scene. And it's, you know, despite the fact that so many artists and writers have been um, displaced through the rent crisis, um, there's still so many great literary events and programming. We still have Lit Quake, which is the nine-day festival in the fall that's been around since 1999, which ends with a pub crawl, a literary pub crawl. So that's Mm -hmm. matching San Francisco's love of books with its love of booze. Um, And then, you know, even though that kind of dominates the festival scene, we had two new festivals this year, Um, the Bay Area Book Festival, which was two days in Berkeley last weekend, I believe, and then the Oakland Book Book Festival. Um, So the fact that those two were a huge success, I think, speaks to um, a very voracious appetite for programming. And then, of course, there's a lot of small literary... um, events like there's a quiet lightning reading series which is hugely popular there's the radar reading series uh at the public library which is um a queer focused reading series through uh author michelle t's um radar productions there's you know writers with drinks as you mentioned i mean the list goes on and on so if you live in the bay area every night of the year there's about four or five at least to choose from that's pretty (laughs) people still go out in the real world here (laughs) to consume <laughs> literary stuff. <laughs> so that's pretty incredible. Um, I'm I'm very impressed that you're all still keeping that going. So what do you feel are the, the sort of distinguishing characteristics of Bay Area literary culture as opposed to New York? 
Well, I can't speak so much to New York. I've tried to live there three times, but I never, I never took to it. So <laughs> I can't necessarily compare. But I do think that I can say for the Bay Area, I mean, Independent Bookstore Day started with California Bookstore Day. And so everyone who lives here has a kind of an intense devotion to the ethos of shopping locally and to and I think in the literary world you know as we're driven towards experiencing so much of our world online and you know obviously people in the Bay Area a lot of them utilize the advances in apps to get their food delivered to them and to mediate their interactions that way there's a huge um, contingency of people who still want to go to the farmer's market, want to buy a print cookbook, want to shop locally, want to interact with their booksellers and want to experience the beauty of being at a literary event in person instead of watching the reading on YouTube or, you know, discovering, um, you know, in San Francisco, we still have, you know, a girl typing poems on a typewriter at the farmer's market. So it still has that kind of um, spirit of, being out in the world and engaging with literature and, and, um, and even in the presses that you see here, there's presses that are, you know, really interesting small presses that are still doing their own thing from anarchist presses to spirituality. Uh, it's, it's, we're doing our own thing. And it's funny because if you talk about spirituality or self-help markets, like back in the day that used to be, not so mainstream, you know, Harper One, which is the imprint in San Francisco of Harper Collins, like when they were first doing um, spirituality titles and alternative health, that was considered way out there. But I think a lot of the values kind of in the Bay Area have gone pretty mainstream. So it's not like we're the wacky weirdos out West anymore. Thank you so much for that uh, overview. And we're definitely looking forward to seeing the Bay Area Spotlight, uh, which is kind of a, a pull-out mini magazine in Monday's issue. So it's great to get this sneak peek. And uh, it's lovely to have you on the show. Thanks for taking the time. Great. Thanks so much, you guys. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Sarah Fort, author of Sprouted Kitchen, Bowl and Spoon. And you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for an interview with Eric Burns, author of 1920, The Year That Made the Decade Roar. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audio audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show, 